the Jewish views on the potential trade agreement between Israel and the UK. What could a post-Brexit deal look like? Blue skies over Berlin. Author John Steinberg tells us about his latest work. And recognising Jewish schools, we find out who's been shortlisted for the Pages Awards 2017. But first, with a roundup of the Jewish news this week, I'm Vivian Krieger. The UK and Israel have announced the creation of a new group which will prepare the ground for a post-Brexit trade deal. In their first direct talks, Theresa May and Benjamin Netanyahu agreed to establish a trade working group that could build on the growing trade relationship between the two countries that was worth around £5 billion last year. At a working lunch in London, the two leaders also discussed the peace process, with Mrs May confirming the UK's commitment to a two-state solution. Students have expressed their shock that Holocaust denial leaflets have appeared on the campuses of British universities. The Union of Jewish Students says literature denying the Nazi genocide has been found at University College London and at Cambridge, Edinburgh and Glasgow universities. The leaflets refer to the recently released film Denial, which dramatises the trial in which Holocaust denier David Irving took historian Deborah Lipstadt to court for libel. Karen Pollock from the Holocaust Educational Trust said she hopes the universities find out as a matter of urgency who is behind this. A Jewish woman in Bushy found slices of bacon hanging over her doorbell next to her mezuzah. Her front garden was also vandalised. The woman said she was too scared to leave the house and that she believed neighbours committed the hate crime. Stephen Silverman of the Campaign Against Anti-Semitism said it was a cowardly act designed to intimidate the victim and Hertfordshire Constabulary announced they were conducting a full and thorough investigation. A Polish-Jewish Holocaust survivor who spent time in eight different concentration camps, including Auschwitz and Buchenwald, has died in Manchester. Chaim Furster, who was 94, was forced to leave his home in 1943 by the Nazis. He and his sister, Manya, who's now 92, and one cousin, were the only members of their family to survive. Mr. Furster moved to England after the war, where he was successful in various businesses and lectured on the Holocaust in schools and colleges. And finally, an Israeli university has developed a smartphone app to outfox thieves. It can identify whether the user is the owner or not in just 14 seconds. Scientists at Ben Gurion University found a way of analysing how the user presses the touchscreen, how they type and how much of their finger they use. The app was launched at a Tel Aviv conference last week. That's the news for now. Andrew's got the sport. Thank you very much, Viv. Jewish football's biggest night of the year has been scrapped due to a disappointing turnout over the past few seasons. League chairman David Wolfe confirmed the traditional end-of-season awards evening had been cancelled due to a low number of attendees. Avram Grant has resigned as coach of Ghana after he led the team to fourth place at the African Cup of Nations. With his contract due to expire over the next couple of weeks, he said, The supporters' loyalty and passion is something I'll always remember. And finally, a Jewish-Canadian tennis player made worldwide headlines this week after Denis Shapovalov was disqualified for hitting the ball at an umpire in his country's Davis Cup tie against GB. The Israeli-born 17-year-old apologised for the incident, saying he was ashamed and embarrassed. 
He was later fined £5,600. Remember, you can catch up on all the latest Jewish sport at jewishnews.co.uk. Andrew, thank you very much indeed. Well, welcome along to this edition of The Jewish Views. I'm Phil Dave. Let's start off, as we always do, with a look through your copy of The Jewish News for this week. Joining me to go through it is editor Richard Ferrer and news editor Justin Cohen. Welcome to you both. Richard, I suppose that we should probably have a look and see what's made its way on the front page for this week. And I believe that there are two prime ministers, two for the price of one. Yes, let's start on page one with a picture of, well, you can't actually tell who the gentleman is because his back is to the camera and he's (laughs) loitering outside number 10 because someone has failed to open the door and let him in. These were the awkward opening moments as Benjamin Netanyahu arrived in Downing Street and he was left to linger on on the pavement for a couple of minutes until the door opened and he finally had his first meeting with our Prime Minister. And if you believe the headlines, the meeting went very well. There was quite a lot to talk about. They had to clear the air after the UN resolution vote of December when Britain decided that it would oppose settlement construction. And that obviously didn't go down terribly well, so I'm sure that had to be dealt with. Our headline is that Britain's announced with Israel that it's going to create a new group tasked with preparing the ground for a post-Brexit trade deal. Trade between the two countries, bilateral trade, is burgeoning. It's £5 billion a year and growing. So there's one in the eye to the BDSs. So clearly with one eye on post-Europe, I'm sure Theresa May and Benjamin Netanyahu are very keen about shoring up that deal. I'm sure they are. So it's it's always been that the two countries, I mean, despite the, the friction, shall we say, that forever seems to be sort of presented in the mainstream news. The two countries have always had a fair understanding when it comes to trade deals, haven't they, Justin? I think it goes beyond trade as well. I think obviously at the moment it's in both countries' interest very much that trade is increased to its maximum. And and it is actually, as we speak already, at a maximum, I think. But I have to say, the meeting didn't focus on issues around settlements and so on. I understand that it was a very positive meeting, perhaps even detected a a change of tone in previous meetings. I think settlements were very much a secondary element to the other discussions on cooperation, not only on trade, but also on cybersecurity, on counterterrorism. Mark Regevin has been speaking quite a lot about how that level of cooperation they hope to up and talked about exploring how they can do that. Yeah, trade and, and shared security, I think, really, in terms of the shop the shop window, the stuff, the everyday things that really matter to the two countries were the two things that I think were addressed. I mean, let's not forget Israel is, I believe, the world leader in cybersecurity and shoring up technology, which is obviously going to be very important in the future. So these are pragmatic, everyday things that the two countries are inextricably linked and will be for many, many years to come. Now, there is another very important story on the front page. And the headline reads, Race Against Time to Save Critically Ill Grandmother. Yeah. So at the top, we've got this big world event, Bibi meeting Theresa May. And below, we have a very, very important community story. This is what I believe the Jewish News does best. We do the best of both worlds, the big international stuff and the real local stories, which really make a difference in our streets and and in our communities. We got a call this week from a family in, in Kenton, a 
grandmother called Sippy Howard is unfortunately been diagnosed with acute myeloid leukemia. She was actually diagnosed on her birthday in December and now it's a race against time to find a donor. There's going to be events at synagogues up and down London I think in the next days and weeks. If you have a look on the Facebook page for Sippy, that's S-I-P-Y Sippy Howard and also the details are in this week's paper. You may be a match and if you can attend one of these events and find out if you can help this family, I'm sure they'll be incredibly grateful. And it's quite important to mention that this is not, some people might be forgiven for recalling the story of Sharon Berger, who of course suffered a very similar, and I believe is still ongoing with a very similar condition. This is not the same story. This is another person now who desperately needs help. It's the same condition. I'm I'm not a doctor. I'm sure there's differences, but as far as I can tell, it's the same condition. Spit for Mum was the Sharon Berger campaign that was very successful. Huge national campaign that got a lot of attention that we also championed. So it, she's also from Kenton. It's it's the, the, co- the coincidences and the similarities here are actually quite striking. But no, these are different ladies, both obviously facing the same challenges. OK, no, it's just important to mention because obviously people would be forgiven for thinking that they have heard this before. And potentially they may have done something to try and help Sharon. But this is obviously another lady. So absolutely all the information you need in this week's Jewish News. Now, Justin, I believe that you have been to Windsor. Mm. Unfortunately, I wasn't invited to the castle, Ah. but I did learn some interesting things in the countryside of Windsor. Close to where I went to university in Egham, a gathering of about 700 people from 18 different countries around Europe, the first ever Limud FSU European conference. Basically, as, as we know, Limud conferences take place around the world. It's possibly the greatest ever export from the UK Jewish community to the international Jewish community. Limud FSU came out of that. And for the first time ever, rather than gathering in the former Soviet Union, they had a conference in in Western Europe. And they managed to bring together, as I said, about 700 people. I think when you think about the different elements of the Jewish community in the UK, you know, you, you think about the British Jews, you think about Israelis, you even think about the burgeoning French community. I don't think there is a great awareness of the number of Russian-speaking Jews in the UK and in London in particular. There were about 200 to 250 Russian-speaking Jews based in the UK attending this event. And I really opened up a new, a new world. I can't say I understood much of the chatter in the corridors of the event, but it was you a fantastic... You didn't rush up on your Russian then. I didn't, sadly. <laughs> Yet. No, I didn't. No. <laughs> is, is that right? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, there was, it was a fantastic gathering with, with some of the, the most prominent leaders of World Jury. You had Malcolm Honeline from the Conference of Presidents, who I have to say gave up a huge amount of his time this whole weekend and about six different sessions he took part in across the weekend. Also, Deborah Lipstadt was there. You had the Claims Conference, the head of the Claims Conference. Jonathan Arkush was there, Simon Johnson, and so on. It was, it was an impressive gathering, very interesting. Now, I believe there's another worthwhile story in the paper this week. Not that all of the stories aren't worthwhile. Well, of course, but there is something in the way of a unique interfaith bit of cooperation going on. What's occurring? A very interesting example here of interfaith cooperation involving a guy from Iraq, a 50-year-old father of seven, and an Israeli doctor, a leading surgeon, ophthalmic surgeon, both of them travelling to London for a brief period last weekend in which they met for the first time. And, And the hope is that the Israeli surgeon will be able to save or help save the eyesight of the the Iraqi guy. It's a fascinating story, really, because 
obviously we, we talk about Iraq not having any diplomatic relations with Israel, but the fact that this kind of assistance is being offered, I think it's very much an example of what we see from Israeli humanitarians around the world. You know, Israelis always being the first in line when there's an, an international disaster. And, and this is, you know, in, on a very small scale, another example of that. We don't yet know whether he is going to be able to help him. Uh, he did some initial tests. He's passed on some further information to to Moorfield Eye Hospital. He, he, though, has committed himself to staying in touch to provide continuing recommendations on his treatment. And the hope is that at some point they'll be able to be able to perform surgery and perhaps even that surgery will take place in Israel. I had the opportunity to ask the Said, which is the name actually given to descendants or direct descendants of the Prophet Muhammad, and he is, he is such a person, had a chance to ask him what he would do as the first thing if he regains his sight. And he said the first thing he would do, he was very definitive in this, he would like to pray in Jerusalem. So that's a nice moment. Goodness me, that is extraordinary and a very nice and positive, hopefully positive way to end the look at the paper for this week. But thank you both very much indeed. That's all we've got time for. Don't forget that you can pick up your copy of the Jewish News every Thursday across London. Or, of course, you could read the e-version online at jewishnews.co.uk. On Monday, the 6th of February, Prime Ministers Theresa May and Benjamin Netanyahu met for their first direct talks. Following their discussions about numerous topics, it's been announced, as you've been hearing, that a new group is to be created for preparing the ground over a post-Brexit trade deal. The announcement has been welcomed by Hugo Bieber, the chief executive of UK-Israel Business. I've been speaking to Hugo to find out exactly how he believes the two countries could benefit from a new arrangement. I started by asking Hugo to tell us why he welcomes the announcement. I mean, I think first what I'd say, this is not an agreement at this stage post-Brexit. This is very much an intention by both governments to work together in the trade interests of both countries. And it's for that reason that I very much welcome this news and that UK Israel Business sees it as a very positive step forward. I think it's very good news that the UK recognizes Israel as an important trading partner, because really in the grand scheme of the UK's trade overseas, Israel is but a small drop in the ocean. However, in the last few years, the trade has grown to over $6 billion worth of bilateral trade. And that is a number that people are starting to notice. Well, somehow that doesn't feel like, I mean, maybe to your average Joe, that doesn't feel like a small drop in the ocean. So maybe could you compare it for us to know why you consider it a small drop in the ocean? I mean, I don't have the exact figures to hand, but I think, you know, our trade with Ireland or with Germany is in the hundreds of millions of dollars in comparison. So it is a small fraction in comparison to some of our the UK's major, major trading partners. Could you just give us a little bit of background in terms of what your organization does and what your role is within it? Absolutely. UK Israel Business is the chamber of commerce between the two countries. We've actually been going since 1950. This is, I think, our third name in the last 60-something years that we've been going. So we started off as the Anglo-Israel Chamber of Commerce. We then became the British Israel Chamber of Commerce. And a few years ago, rebranded to UK Israel Business. And we're really there at the intersection of trade and investment between both countries. We are a membership-based organization. Most of our members are British companies, but quite a number of members are also Israelis. And what we seek to do is help create introductions, create potential investment opportunities, and help 
people in both countries understand how to work with the other better. And so therefore, give people the tools that they need to go and trade or invest or purchase from the other country. And we very much sit at that intersection. We're not government funded. We're not a government organization. We're set up as a not-for-profit, essentially. And we're there really to give that independent, objective advice. Would you be able to maybe explain to us how Israel and the UK stands to benefit, this might sound a bit obvious, but post-Brexit? Because there are a lot of people out there who are very concerned that once Britain does officially leave the European Union, that our backbone, our, our main trading partners are all going to go crumbling away and we're going to lose everything and our economy will be in a dire state. Obviously, I know that you can only speak in, as far as the UK and Israel is concerned, but you obviously will know what it's like now and you obviously have aspirations for what it will be like post-Brexit. So could you maybe just talk us through both of those? So let's start off with what's it like now and then maybe just tell us how we could benefit once we've left the EU. I think that the trading relationship between the UK and Israel over the last few years has just got stronger and stronger and stronger. And you're seeing, you know, for example, Teva supplies, I think, one in seven medicines to the NHS. That is a huge number of and huge amount of medicine that is supplied by Teva as just one example. You're seeing Teva, Israeli, so the, the Israeli, Israeli based pharmaceutical company, yes? Yes, they, they're manufacturers of generic medicines. You're seeing a lot of Israeli startups and early stage companies now really looking at the UK as either their first market or their next market. I mean, take Guess as an example. They now have, I think, over half of all London black cabs on their system. And they bought radio taxis last year, that radio taxis being, I think, one of the largest sort of networks of black licensed taxi drivers. So you're seeing an Israeli company creating a huge investment in the last few years. Get have gone from zero to 20 to now over 200 employees in the UK. That's a very significant number of people to employ in the space of a few years for a foreign company. And so you're seeing Israelis really benefiting from the UK, benefiting from our stable legal environment, benefiting from, from our financing and everything else, and benefiting from what is actually been one of the few growing economies in the European Union over the last few years. And so the UK is an attractive place. Now, in terms of Israeli companies post-Brexit, I guess the risk to them is that the UK might not be that same level of launchpad for the rest of Europe as it currently is, because no one knows at this stage what's going to happen from a regulatory perspective. If you're a financial company, you don't know if you're going to get financial passporting in the same way that we have at the moment, as an example. But I think on the positive side, I get the impression, certainly, that the UK is focusing on building stronger trade relationships outside the European Union with countries, whether it's India or China or the US or some of the other large countries that are potentially slightly untapped markets for British businesses. And Israeli companies are very well positioned to piggyback off those relationships through the UK. It does seem quite extraordinary how Israel... I'm talking pro rata here. I know that you mentioned at the start of this interview that you said that it is a mere drop in the ocean by comparison to some other countries. But it does seem quite extraordinary how Israel, obviously the country the size that it is, has managed to infiltrate our day-to-day -day lives, possibly to the degree that some people wouldn't know if they don't have a particular interest in Israel. So obviously there are going to be those from the BDS movement who call to boycott Israel and all that it provides to the UK. But it you'd be forgiven for not actually realising just how much of an impact they do already have on the UK, certainly in terms of technology and medicine, as you've already alluded to. 
Totally. And I mean, I think that where Israel has really excelled historically has been in actually the boring stuff from a tech perspective that man on street would not even know about. That could be the chips or the sensors in your smartphone. It could be what's making your TV work. It could be the thing in your broadband router that makes it connect. It could be all those mundane things that are behind the scenes that man on street doesn't know about. Israel has historically not been particularly successful with the exception of the likes of Waze, for example, at business to consumer companies. You know, Waze is one of the few Israeli companies that has gone out and adopted hundreds of millions of users. You know, Wix has been very, very successful at what it's done as well in the B2C space. But historically, the most interesting Israeli companies you see are those that are selling to other businesses. And, you know, it is an absolute hotbed of technology. We take investor delegations out to Israel on a regular basis. And people, even people that know Israel very, very well, come back absolutely amazed at what they're seeing. Could you maybe explain to us a little bit about how the Israeli economy finds itself at the moment? Because I've got to confess, I don't know very much about it. And I would assume that you've got your finger on the pulse. It's not the most simple question to answer. Israel is a complicated economy because in some respects, it's two economies. You have a very much a high-tech economy, which is what we're seeing in the UK. It's what we're benefiting from. But there's also very much a traditional economy in Israel. The high-tech economy has well-paid jobs and generates a significant amount of wealth amongst a smaller group of people in Israel. And when you look at a lot of the Israeli companies that do go and exit for hundreds of millions of dollars, a lot of their invest, yeah, some of their investors are certainly the Israeli funds. But you'll also see a lot of American investors in there, particularly from Silicon Valley. And so a lot of the money that actually gets made when Israeli companies sell doesn't really go back into the Israeli economy. It might go into a few of the founders, but not, you know, when a company gets sold for 500 million, maybe million, maybe 100 million will go back into the Israeli economy with the rest going into foreign funds. One of the most interesting things that we're seeing in Israel is the efforts being made to help integrate the economy in a better manner. Because if you look at the Israeli Arab population and the Haredi population, the religious Jewish population in Israel, a lot of them are not a key part of the workforce. And we're seeing some very, very strong government initiatives now to integrate them better. You're seeing schools and colleges that are designed to help Haredis learn how to code, taking that same mindset that can interrogate the Torah and everything around that and say, look, use that mind in the mornings and in the afternoons, learn, use that mind to go and learn how to code instead. It's the same sort of analytical skill set. And there's programs that are there to coach them, to help them if they want to form a startup or to help them get jobs in some of the larger employers like your Cisco's and your Microsoft's. And at the same time as that, your Cisco's and Microsoft's are being guided as to how to make it an easy work environment for an ultra-religious Jew to sit in. So making sure there's the kosher kitchen provision, making sure that everything is done to help a religious employee feel very comfortable there. Starting to see more people that are not in the traditional workforce come into the workforce now. That's a great thing because for the government, it's an easy return. They spend a small amount of money on training someone that's not working at the moment. Suddenly they get a job, they're paying taxes. They're actually part of the biggest society in Israel. You personally, what would you like to see come out of this potential new agreement between the UK and Israel? Look, I think personally, I'd love to see the trade double again over the next few years. And I think there's a lot more potential for that. I'd love to see more 
Israeli business-to-consumer companies really grow up and to be able to penetrate the UK market. Hugo Bieber, the chief executive of UK-Israel Business, giving me his reaction to the creation of a new group which will prepare the ground for a post-Brexit trade deal. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Still to come on this edition, Clive Roslin will be here for our Jewish schmooze. Today, Clive and Adam will be joined by actor and photographer Tony Honigberg and founder of West End Travel, David Siegel. They'll be discussing what you've just been hearing about, the potential trade possibilities post-Brexit between Israel and the UK. Plus, Diana Toman will be speaking to Susanna Simons from Pages about this year's Jewish Schools Awards. But first, as you may have heard from last week's show, Jewish Book Week is nearly upon us. The community has no shortage of authors, including our next guest. John Steinberg's second novel, Blue Skies Over Berlin, will be the subject of an event taking place in association with Spyro Arc on the 12th of February. Entertainment and culture reporter Kate Fulton has been speaking to John to find out more about his latest work. Kate started by asking John to give us a synopsis of his book. It has a different meaning, different connotation. Every time you read the book, you find some other interpretation. The story surrounds a young Aryan woman, Eva Schlesinger, who spends her teenage years in war-torn Berlin. She comes from a wealthy family, but unloved by her mother. She avoids any unpalatable reality by immersing herself in her landscape paintings. She is a talented young artist. At the end of the war, her beloved father has died of his injuries. And in search, I suppose, of a father figure, she moves to Switzerland to rekindle a friendship with a dashing doctor, Johann, who served with her father in the Luftwaffe and resumed his career as a doctor at a sanatorium in Switzerland. So is Eva Jewish? Eva isn't. Eva is an Aryan. An Aryan. Oh, sorry, you did say. You did say, yeah. She also intends to find a complete her education, which she does at a university in Basel, but commutes between Basel and Davos, where Johan is the director of a sanatorium, and they conduct, which is her first affair. It ends very badly, leaving her with even lower self-esteem than when she started. She suffers from low self-esteem, And because of a lack of love, particularly from her mother, she's emotionally repressed. So at the end of that relationship, when she completes her degree, she decides to sever all links with the past, adopt Swiss nationality, which she's able to do because her mother was Swiss, and also a change of name. So Eva Schlesinger moves to London with the prospect of a prestigious job at the National Gallery as a curator as Charlotte Brown. A couple of years later... She meets another older man, Bernard Morris, an East End businessman who made good, who persuades her to join and head up his gallery, private gallery he's opened in Mayfair. She agrees to do that, but when she does, she finds herself in the centre of the sharp end of the business world, which she's not used to. She's confronted by aristocratic rogues, businessmen with dubious overseas connections, and she is completely and utterly out of her depth. Worse, several instances remind her of her past, mainly through art, which she's forced to relive. Art is a theme which runs from the beginning to the end of the book. After a couple of unsatisfactory relationships that end badly and poor career choices, 
she finds herself out of a job and centre of a criminal investigation. She suffers a nervous breakdown, as her mother did before her, and ends up without any work, any money whatsoever, picks herself up eventually and decides to teach. So she becomes a teacher of art again, immersing herself and escaping through art. A few years later, she meets a woman of a similar age. They find that they have quite a lot in common and that their paths are somewhat intertwined. As a result of that, it enables Charlotte to come to terms with who she is, what she denied herself seeing in the past, and making amends, really, for closing her eyes. Right. So that's there's a, a, that's a synopsis. Synopsis. And no spoilers, thank you. That's a, so that's art a does seem to be a theme. A, art is a theme that runs throughout. But right. Art is something which, because she's a talented young artist, it's easy for her to... Everybody wants to escape into something. She escapes into art because she can. It's a way which she avoids an unpalatable reality, which takes up most of her life. But through art, she's reminded of the past. Through art, she meets some very, very nefarious businessmen who are very dubious businessmen who actually get their come up again through art. And eventually, she finds her redemption through art. So it's a theme which runs all the way through. And it gives a visual feel to the story. You've not always been a writer. I'm just going to just talk about you for a bit. Okay, I started writing late on in life. I'm, I started writing a few lines in 2005. I was always was interested, as I still am, in comedy. So I started writing a few lines that ended up being greetings cards, which I thought was the way to become a writer. And then I wrote a treatment for the film idea. And I didn't know what to do with it. And I got introduced to a particular chap who was a film director a client of my accountants at the time, a chap called Ray, I'm still very friendly with. Ray is a film producer by profession. He thought I had the money and I thought he had the talent, and we both were wrong, but we both got it extremely well together. The treatment, which he actually liked, said we ought to do something with. Six months, seven months, eight months later after we met, uh, we'd written a play. I didn't know what I was doing. I wrote the play, I learned how to write dialogue, which is basically what theatre is. It's mainly dialogue. And what did I do then? I booked a theatre for six weeks, employed all the actors. I don't really know why I did it, and I didn't know what I was getting myself into. But all I can say, I never enjoyed losing money so much as I did in, in that. It, it was a fantastic experience. So what brought you towards Berlin and the whole idea? Okay, what was so your... Then I produced and co-wrote a second play which did very well, but I was wise at that time and realised it was easier to lose money by cutting down the duration, the length of the play, and also by the number of cars that was cut to half. That lost less money. Then I started to write on my own, which is what I needed to do. My joy, writing as a joint writer is one thing, but to know whether you can write on your own is something completely different. So I, I worked on a couple of plays which didn't go well. I just wanted to see whether I could do it. And then I was introduced to a publisher, but I'd never written anything that required a publisher. So one of the plays that I'd actually written was about a gladiator who became a sage based upon a third-century Talmudic figure. It was a work of fiction, and I thought that could make a reasonable novel. That was my first novel. Then I was into the whole idea of book one, two, three, and four are people's journeys. The historical fiction, Shimon, was a spiritual journey, and this one, uh, Blue Skies Over Berlin, is a journey of conscience. But I wanted to do a 
book surrounding the war where the Holocaust perhaps was an undercurrent. It wasn't out in the open. I didn't want to do anything like the that. The background music. It was like. background and it comes through uh, memories and flashbacks and all sorts of things. But the book actually starts off in 1956. Any reference to the war is done through flashbacks, memories and things like that. And was your family directly affected? No, no, they weren't. But my wife's aunt, which gave me the original idea, was one of the first children off the kinder transport. She is the main character in the book. She was the main character in the book. And then my editor had better ideas and, and she came up with the suggestion that Charlotte should be the main character and not the other one. Her name is Lillian. It was different to have a story like that, not from a German woman's perspective, because it's a journey of conscience, but making the young Aryan woman the main character, I thought was something different. Yes, because a lot of these novels, it would be it a is. Jewish I mean, character. Exactly. Yeah. And she encounters Jews along in, in her journey, and it's, it's how she relates them, etc. And you are going to be discussing your book at an event at the Spiro Arc. Yes, I am. Tell me a bit about that. I met Nitsa Spiro a couple of months ago. And since I'm doing a lot of promoting the, the promotion of the book myself, I asked them whether they might be interested in hosting an event. But we wanted to try and find a, a different format. And so I'm actually discussing the book with two other people, Dr. Tally Lowenthal and Eduardo Pichon. They both read the book and they're seeing it from a different point of view. The, the Tally Lowenthal is an academic interested in teachers' Hebrew studies and interested, found the book interesting from a spiritual point of view. Eduardo from a different point of view, being a psychotherapist. And I guess that they're both going to ask me questions. Interrogating you. It's yeah. going to be a fabulous evening. If we want to go and see it, how do we get tickets? It's still, it's still available. available. It's still available online if you go on to Sparrow Arc. Or you can, I think, turn up on the door. Presumably we'll be signing copies at some point of the evening I am well. sure I will be. I'm sure I will be. Great. Thank you. Author John Steinberg talking to Kate Fulton there about his second novel, Blue Skies Over Berlin, which will be the subject of a Spyro Arc event on the 12th of February. For more information, then go to the Spyro Arc website, which is Spyro Arc, that's S-P-I-R-O, Arc, A-R-K, SpyroArc.org. In just a moment will be this week's Schmooze. A reminder that we live stream the Schmooze on our Facebook page every Thursday evening from 7pm Greenwich Mean Time. That all-important address is coming up, but it means that you can comment along as the discussion unfolds. And of course, we'll try and read out some of those comments as and when we get them. It's just another way that you can share your Jewish views with us. Speaking of which, if you would like to get involved, we would love to hear your Jewish views. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com forward slash Jewish Views or on Twitter. We are at Jewish Views UK. Now, if the child in your life goes to a Jewish school, did you know that it's just one of 130? A common link that they all have, apart from the obvious, is Pages, or the Partnership for Jewish Schools. They've just announced their shortlist for the second ever Jewish Schools Awards. Community reporter Diana Toman has been speaking to Susanna Simons from Pages to find out more about this year's ceremony. Diana started by asking Susanna to tell us why the awards were started in the first place. The reason behind the awards really was we felt... We've got 
wonderful Jewish schools. There's, there's 130 in total in the UK. And we wanted to recognise the tireless and hard work that those teachers in the schools do. And we thought this would be a good opportunity for head teachers, for governors, for other members of staff, for pupils, for parents of pupils, for friends to nominate teachers who they think should have a light shone on them for the outstanding work they do for us. That's for quite community. that's quite a list, isn't it? 100, 130 schools? How did you shortlist the nominees? And what, for instance, are their qualifications? This year we have different awards from last year. This year our awards are for teachers. So the, the awards are for primary and secondary school. And um, we're looking for this year it's teachers who are in their first three years of teaching. Another award is for modern Hebrew teachers. Another award is for assistant or deputy head teachers. And our final award this year is for special needs staff. Last year, for example, we had awards for innovation in primary school Jewish studies and secondary school Jewish studies, use of ICT in the classroom for both schools, head teachers. And again, next year we will again change the category is so that everyone within a school has a chance to be nominated. And this year we had, compared to last year, we had about 200 nominations. We had over 350 nominations this year. So following on from the success of last year, it got more popular. And shortlisting, due to the amount of nominations, we, first of all, a member of staff at Pages went through everything and obviously took out if there were any that weren't relevant at all and they'd be nominated for wrong categories and then we had two external people who helped us one was a head teacher of for many years of different Jewish schools within the community who's now retired and another is an expert educational trainer they then shortlisted from the 350 down to about 50 and then our panel of judges once we then had once we'd sent the smaller list to head teachers for endorsements we then gave the list to our judges and they went through each category and whittled it down who are the judges Susanna we've got five judges one who's well known to you who's Richard Ferrer the editor of the Jewish News oh indeed yeah Alistair Folk who was the executive director of pages several years ago and he's currently the Chief Executive of the Birmingham Educational Partnership. Sue Williamson, she's the Director and Chief Executive of the School Students and Teachers Network. Karen Harris, who is the Managing Director of Into, and we've got Lord Winston. That's quite a star-studded yes, list, isn't it, of yep, judges? Yep. And did they all agree with each other, or was there a sort of final knockout there's a couple that are debated over, but generally they all came to the same consensus in the end. Oh, so. Just as well. <laughs> Tell me, yeah. how do the winners benefit from this award, or these awards, I should say? All of the shortlisted finalists get an award, an amount of money which we've been very lucky to have donated to us in sponsorship. Then the winners get a larger amount, which they get to put towards a project of their choice in their school that they'll that they work on. For example, last year, and we're going to feature it in our video at this year's awards, um, we focused on two of the winners from last year. One was interested in developing an interfaith program with some Muslim schools in the area, and they've really developed that now. A week where a select group of pupils from their school went 
to the other school and back the other way. And they've now got an interfaith football team at one of the schools that has set up lots of conferences. Another of the winners last year, for example, was creating a, an app for biblical Hebrew and using the money she's been able to develop that and put that in place and, and use that in the classroom with her sixth form pupils. So it, it really benefits because it's it's some money that the school wouldn't have to develop certain projects. Yes, I, these I, teachers can now can now. I can hear that. Just finally, the ceremony. Let's just have a quick word on the ceremony. Where yeah. will it be? And they'll all be there, presumably, with all the judges. Yes, so that's it. It's going to take place at JW three. Oh, good. It's taking place on the twenty second of February, and obviously, all of the finalists will be there. All of the judges, representatives from. Not just the finest schools, but we've invited uh, all the Jewish schools, head teachers or governors, and then members of the community who are interested in helping with Jewish schools or who've been involved or who would like to be involved. So it's a wide range. Susanna Simons from Pages, or the Partnership for Jewish Schools, talking to community reporter Diana Toman there about this year's Jewish Schools Awards. For a full list of all the nominees and the categories that they appear in, then you can always go to the Pages website, which is pages, spelt P-A-J-E-S, dot org, dot U-K. Pages, dot org, dot U-K. Best of luck to all the entrants and our colleagues at the Jewish News will be sure to keep you posted on what happens. Still to come on this edition of the Jewish Views, we'll have our rabbinic thought for the week. This time it comes courtesy of Rabbi Amanda Golby from New North London, Mazorti Synagogue. But before that... You're listening to The Jewish Views, and this is The Jewish Schmooze, the part of the show where studio guests join me, Clive Roslin, to discuss matters that you've been hearing throughout the programme so far. Joining Adam Bradley and me today is actor and photographer Tony Honigberg and the founder of West End Travel, David Siegel. And today's subject is based on the news that the UK and Israel have announced the creation of a new group which will prepare the ground for a post-Brexit trade deal. The question is, what do the two countries stand to gain from the trade restrictions of the EU being lifted? And what do we feel the UK and Israel can gain for being such strong trading partners? Well, David, let's start with you. As someone who works in the travel industry, and I'm sure Israel features a bit in your work, to say the least, what do you see as the benefits for the two countries working together? I think, Clive, it's a it's a very fair question. But I think it's fair to say that the visit of Mr Netanyahu was probably 50% of a PR exercise because I think we all know that Israel has been trading with Great Britain and vice versa for very many years. They've been doing an enormous amount of export from this country and certainly import the other way around. So I'm not really sure that because we're going to come out of the European Union and the Brexit sort of takes hold, that all of a sudden they're going to conclude a bigger trade deal with Israel than they probably already have. So I think to a large extent, it was an opportunity for Mr. Netanyahu to come here. It was in my opinion, a PR exercise, and just to rubber stamp what is already happening anyway. I think England has a lot more to gain from the manufacturing and technology that Israel has to offer. I don't know actually what we export to Israel from the UK. I'm not sure. So. <laughs> I don't think I know that either. <laughs> Does anybody Do know you, that? Adam? 
We export the odd Jew now and again, don't we? <laughs> well, on that. We, we export an awful lot of tourism. The tourism. We'll start with that. It's true. Yes. It's well, abstract. We, don't have, we you, don't have any manufacturing that we export, do we? Not that I know of, but certainly the other way around. Look at the technology in Israel, produced hmm. in Israel, and in, in this sort of their Silicon Valley almost in the tens and the hundreds of millions which is coming to this country. And probably in this very studio, there are items here which we're probably using somewhere the lungs have probably been manufactured in Israel. And of course, there's an awful lot of medical <clears throat> stuff that, we, that Israel sends to this country as well. Tremendous amount. Israel are at the forefront of everything that is advanced in medicine, in technology, in theatre, operational theatre. Even, you might not know this, Clive, the speed cameras up the Hendon Way were manufactured I in certainly Israel. didn't know that, <clears throat> no. The Teva Group, which mm. is the company in, in Israel... Pharmaceutical. Exactly. As we heard earlier in the interview, they provide one in seven medicines to the NHS. One uh, in seven? One in seven. That's a phenomenal amount. It's an incredible yeah. amount. Which does kind of bring us back to the old argument of BDS and people boycotting Israeli goods. It's like, so please do boycott it as much as you can, because in six years' time, you won't be with us. With the boycotts, they're only tickling the surface. (laughs) And this boycott itself, if they really wanted to implement a boycott and really do it, sort of as a matter of religion, because that's probably what it is, Mm. they wouldn't have television and they wouldn't have fridges, they wouldn't have have telephones, they wouldn't have medicine. And just as about you getting your injection in the hospital, they're going to say, well, hang on, this was... It was manufactured in Israel. And what makes me laugh as well is that so many of these people express their opinions on social media, like Facebook, for example, which is started by a Jew, Mm. which is they're all accessing it on their laptops, which has Intel processors, which were made in Israel. You know, they can't even boycott. If they boycott Israel no one will know about it, which is brilliant. <laughs> That's a good way of looking at no, it. Sitting, I'm sitting here with my, with my mouth open because, to be perfectly honest with you, I was totally unaware. I knew about the medical side, but I don't think I knew anything else. The technology that Israel has been involved in, in research and development and, and manufacturing, all right, some of it is manufactured in China and, and in America, but the development of it all, the, the little memory sticks that you get, was developed in Israel. Israel invented it. The chips that are in your mobile phone, Israel yeah. invented smart, it. Smart, well. Smartphones, smartphones are due to Israeli technology. So is there anything that works the other way? Well, that's what I'm saying. I don't know what we export yeah. back. It's, a good, from it's a good question. They'd probably be struggling to say, well, this is what we export to Israel. There has to be something because there is this bilateral trade agreement in both directions but as you say if i had to put my finger on something instantly or any of you in here then you'd probably say travel tourism Mm, not necessarily travel is the only thing it's the only thing where you can possibly put your finger on the the israel embassy cultural and economic department are probably rushing to their telephones now to rattle off another hundred things which they do export from this country that none of us in here know about. are aware of well i had a kind of a fun argument with a very close friend of mine a few months ago he's not jewish he's english we had a discussion about how israel or the jews and british people how similar they actually are because it was kind of we were playing this silly sort of one-upmanship game we were just teasing each other saying ah but the jews did this and he said yeah but the british did this and as we got further into the conversation incredible how much these two very small nations because we forget how small britain is as a nation the influence that both nations have had on the planet is staggering and i think 
an agreement between these two nations with the innovative inventions that are coming out. I mean, it was a few years ago, over 50%. This was in the... Actually, it was in the 90s, so it's longer than I realised. Mm. But over 50% of all inventions worldwide came from Britain. Britain. We didn't manufacture them or produce them in this country, but the ideas came from Britain. We were very big in the invention. We, we yeah. were very big in those days. We, oh, we, we are we, no longer, though, are we? We were the British Don't Empire. Think so. yeah. We were the British Empire, and today you've got to count on your fingers just how many major countries are still left connected with this country. I looked after the, the travel for the Commonwealth Jewish Council, mm. and at its peak, there were countries, small Jewish communities all over the world, all proud to be representing the Jewish community from Barbados, Bahamas, the Seychelles, anywhere that was sort of linked to the Commonwealth. And today, this is shrinking, to be quite honest. Countries like Malta have gone independent. They used to be very much mm. Britain. And what have we got left? Certainly Gibraltar, even Hong Kong, we kiss goodbye. As far as I know, I can say as a protectorate, the only country we have left is Gibraltar, plus a few dotted around in the Caribbean. We've actually you. got a comment on Facebook here from, from Ben, whose comment was BBC TV, which actually I think is a very good... We, we do export it, that, It, it is a remarkable export. I'm not going to get into the BBC bias, non-bias. No, Either no, way, everyone thinks... Everyone has their own opinion on that. But he's right, BBC TV... And then he goes on to say, no offence, but what does Britain export in general? Which well, is kind of lost, what we're saying. Which is what we're saying. Yeah, we've yeah. lost our manufacturing, yeah. haven't yeah. we? We don't manufacture very much at all. So. No, we really don't. And he yeah. it goes on to say, so many companies of corporate campuses, Microsoft, Google, who bought Waze, an Israeli company. Mm. So uh, even the Israeli companies are being bought up by these uh, So I suppose he, what he mentioned isn't really enough. Uh, we do export a tremendous number of television programmes, but I don't suppose that makes much money, really. Although it? I think we also... It makes money for the BBC. It does make a lot of money. money. And I yeah. think it also promotes a certain standard, and it gives a very good reputation to Britain, because the BBC is a world leader in, in production standards. Yeah. I was thinking of the other thing. I was thinking more on the manufacturing side or the pharmaceutical side because we were big in pharmaceuticals at one time well, Britain, but I don't know if we're as big as we used to be. Well Mrs Thatcher mm. stopped that didn't she? I mean it's, it, yeah. the Thatcher regime stopped that didn't they? Am I right in saying that? I, I, I would I imagine know. she certainly passed <laughs> put the brakes on it. <laughs> right. I wonder if any of you know what kind of intelligence and particularly military intelligence because Israel and, and Britain do share defence technology and software and, and, and probably would, other intelligence yeah and I would um, imagine I don't know if any of you know but I would imagine Britain actually mm. leaders in that aspect and I wonder if Israel actually do benefit from Britain in that sense I would imagine they would I'll tell you what I think they share an awful amount of information between them very often when they quote an intelligence issue and say we have information from a source very often that source their intelligence is, is quite amazing. They do share at all levels, whether it's in this country or that's, for example, in Northern Ireland with the RUC, they share information and they exchange information and they, to a great extent, they're training up quietly behind the scene without fanfare, all walks of intelligence life to show that Israel really knows what they're doing. And I want to say something else. But that wouldn't, that wouldn't come into whether we're in Europe or out of Europe. <laughs> Absolutely not. Anyway. And also, does that bring much money in and out of, between the well, two? Well, there must be you know, an exchange of money somewhere along the line because nobody works for free, but you only have to look in Africa what Israel are doing in these, in these countries where they're giving 
information, where they're teaching, where they're educating, where they're working with the local air force, whichever country it is. You know, as Jews, we're very proud of what Israel does mm. and very sensitive when Israel gets knocked. And even me in the travel business, when a client will come to me, Clive, and say, we have a budget, we want to send 50 top salesmen from some motor company and their wives, we want to take 100 people somewhere. This is our budget. You're the agent. What do you recommend? I will never come out and say, go to Israel immediately. I'll say, what about Munich? What about Dublin? How about Athens? Oh, what about Israel? Because I'm very sensitive mm. of wanting to bang on to quote one someone who once referred to them as my people. But does it work? Mm. It does work. There's always a sort of excitement of when they go to Israel and sometimes eyebrows raised. We're in the football business a lot. We do a lot of sports travel. So sometimes we have teams playing in Israel and I'll always go that extra mile. I'm touchy. If someone goes to Vienna and says, oh, the food in the hotel was terrible. One of those things. I'm really sorry. But if they go to Israel and they say, oh, we've just been to such and such hotel, the food was terrible, I personally am deeply embarrassed. <laughs> yeah. That's so true. Yeah, I, can, I, I would be embarrassed as well. Yeah. And yeah. I love it when my friends, especially in Belfast, where I work very strongly and they're very strong supporters of Israel in Northern Ireland on the Protestant side. I'll tell you something, by the way, whilst we're talking about Northern Ireland, which I'm sure none of you, the three of you in here know, is where in the world are there more Israeli flags flying than in any other city apart from Israel? Belfast. The answer is Belfast. And the reason is because the IRA many, many years ago embraced the Palestinian cause. Mm -hmm. And in West Belfast, they were flying the flags. Instantly, the Protestants in East Belfast hung up the Israeli flags, notwithstanding the fact that Yaakov Herzog himself was born, born in there. Belfast. Right. Which he was. And there's a square in Belfast called Yaakov Herzog Square. I can attest to this. My father's from Northern Ireland. I spent every summer of my childhood in Northern Ireland. And, and it's true. It's, yeah. it's a very pro-Israel. Very pro-Israel community. The Protestant side is. Correct. Yeah. On the East yeah, Belfast right. side. And I go there and they used to joke that, you know, I sort the problems out between the Protestants and the Catholics. And But even when they call me super Jew, which I know they do purely <laughs> out of friendship and love for me, nonetheless... I'm touchy about it. Yeah, um, yeah I once spoke in Belfast at the, well, you probably know Belfast, so at the, at the Europa Hotel, which is probably the most bombed hotel in the world. And when I finished my speech, there was one guy in the audience who said, he's a Jew. And I just decided to ignore it. But about 90 people came and apologized to me afterwards because they too are touchy right. about, Good, about, right? about the, the association. Well, funnily, <laughs> when we used to go, when we first went to Israel, when we were in the Arab Shuk, in Jerusalem, we used to say we were Irish. Our friends, because they, they thought, thought the Republic of Ireland. Yeah, of course. So we say we're English. <laughs> oh, no friends. I'd like to sort of look into the idea that this trade agreement, or what will be this trade agreement, I almost think it's it's what goes around the agreement is almost more important than the agreement which is, itself. Which is almost what David yeah, said at exactly. the beginning. Yeah. Say, for example, Theresa May has quite publicly stated she believes in Israel's right to defend itself against the rocket attacks. She believes in a two-state solution. That's quite some support from mm. a world player. And I think this trade She's agreement... She's not frightened of standing up, though, is she? 
So that's she's good. not. She's Which good. good. But also, I mean, you've got to come at night. I have got a come at night. Um, from Andrea that says, I think that Britain will benefit from Israel expertise Which is what we more said. than Israel will benefit it's from Britain. Exactly and I what think we she's said. Right, actually. Well, that's a good way in which to end, perhaps. My thanks to our guests. We're just, we're just getting going. <laughs> <laughs> well, my thanks anyway to actor, photographer Tony Honigberg and the founder of West End Travel, David Siegel. Please do feel free to share your Jewish views with us and you can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com slash jewishviews or on Twitter, we are at jewishviewsuk. Well, time now for our rabbinic thought for the week and this time it comes from Rabbi Amanda Golby from New North London Masorti Synagogue. I glanced at the weather forecast this weekend for here and for Israel. Here it's forecast to be cold, in Israel rather warmer. And the reason for looking was that this Shabbat is to Bishvat, the new year of trees. I recall occasions when it's taken all afternoon for my feet to thaw out after planting a tree with Cheder children. And those occasions when I've been in Israel and experiencing hay fever symptoms because it really is the start of spring. However, it's a time for being conscious of the world of nature. While spring may feel fairly distant, certainly the days are already lengthening. And always on the Shabbat nearest to Bishvat, or in Tubishvat itself as this year, it's Shabbat Shira, the Shabbat of song, because we read Bishalach containing the song of the sea. And there's a lovely tradition of putting out food for the birds, something, of course, we should do at all times. But on this Shabbat, when in many communities there's a focus on song, we think also of birds, nature's singers. It's a good opportunity to think about ecology, how we look after our environment in the best way possible. I'm doing various things over Shabbat in celebration of Tubishvat, and also look forward to that moment in Shul when we stand as the Shira, the song of the sea, is chanted. Yet at the same time as I picture the Israelites, freed by Pharaoh and standing at the shore of the Sea of Reeds and waiting, I'm aware of mixed emotions. We all know of the waters parting, miraculously, and yet there's the midrash that this did not in fact happen until Nachshon ben Aminadav had the courage to step into the waters until his face was covered, a reminder for all that we need to take risks at times and not just passively wait. Sometimes we need to help to make miracles. Life has many contradictions, nature with all its wonderful aspects and sometimes sadly its cruelty, ideals of peace and yet we know about conflict, war. And there's the healing power of singing, whether it's the children of Israel, the shorter song led for the women by Miriam, indeed the singing of birds or all the other singing that happens within our world. Our challenge is to hold all of these together. And this Shabbat gives us an opportunity to focus on some of the ideals which hopefully can strengthen us for all those times when things are not as we would ideally like. Thank you to Rabbi Amanda Golby from New North London Mazorti Synagogue with our thought for the week there. And that's all the Jewish views we have time for. Thanks to our guests, Hugo Bieber, John Steinberg, Susanna Simons. Thanks also to the Schmooze team, Tony Honigberg and David Siegel. And of course, to you at home for listening. And we mustn't forget the team, including our producers, Adam Bradley and Sue Greenberg. You can always listen to the most recent edition of the Jewish Views by visiting the Jewish News website, jewishnews.co. And you can listen to all previous editions by searching for us in iTunes. 
The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News and is part recorded at the studios of Jewish Care in London. I'm Phil Dave. Do make sure you join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.